Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast, conversations to engage and inspire missional people. Well, welcome everybody to the Venture 12 podcast, season two, episode three, I think. Yeah. We need Chris here. He always gets yeah, it right. I, I always get he, it wrong. He gets the numbers right. <laughs> well, I think it is episode three and we've got a great show for you uh, today. And um, we're three here today. We've got a special debut for my friend Adam from Denmark. Hey. Hi. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm glad uh, to sign up for this podcast. I'm, I really want to do my best, give my all for for uh, really for the pumped. shirt, for the shirt and everything. So yeah, yeah. wonderful. You did. A, it's a great interview. Oh, thanks. We Hannah. have a lot to look forward to. We've got Hannah. Yeah. You all right? Yeah, I feel fresh. I've been um, Chris, and he's taken us on to England for five days. So I've had a house to myself. Yeah. So it's been clean and uh, <laughs> quiet. You've coped. I've coped. Yeah, yeah, I miss them, but yeah, yeah, I've enjoyed watching television more than I normally do. <laughs> you look fresh. Thank you very much. Yeah, that will go tonight. Yeah, that will go tonight when yeah. they're back. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, um, how are you, Mark? Uh, oh, good question. Yeah, I always have to think about that because sometimes I lie when people yeah, ask I know. me. Yeah, uh, I think I'm good. Um, I'm really happy to to be doing this podcast with you guys. Really excited, actually. The podcast which you're going to listen to in just a moment is I thought it was brilliant and when I was listening to it earlier Emma who was out in another room she mm. was eavesdropping and she just walked in and said this is brilliant <laughs> so good. I was like yes <laughs> uh, so it feels really good to be to be here um, yeah. but otherwise I'm I'm good I'm happy that Adam's with us yeah, yeah. so uh yeah good to have good. new voices yeah we wanted to say something about uh, a lack of feedback, didn't we? we? We're still wanting some people from the UK to get back to, to us. Yeah, that's right. Chris will be really disappointed. He's, he's not yeah. with us today, but he's he's got this project to get feedback from all over the world. And he yeah. started off big. So yeah. uh, <laughs> he really wants someone from the UK. And he did threaten if no one, if no one gave any oh, feedback, yeah. he was going to get his mum. So next time, yeah. it's Carolyn. It's Carolyn. We're going to get Carolyn on the show. Uh, me and Chris were joking about getting our dads on the show. Oh, right? yeah, you did. But I thought that'd be a bit intense and weird. But um, it might come to that if no one gives any feedback. It's going to be family <laughs> to help us out. So, yeah, we're still looking for someone from the UK. Um, we're going through all the countries. where Because the great thing about when you do podcasts, we can see the breakdown of where we have listeners from. So, and I was really blessed actually when we looked at the list. We've got people from almost all corners of, of the world. We were really surprised, really moved, really blessed by it. So we're, we're taking a journey across mm. the world. Um, Wanting so to get to know people and hearing about the context they're in and just inspiring to hear how they're serving the church in yeah. so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. So if you're in the UK, then... Uh, well, you've got a, a week or two to reach out to us. Yeah. Otherwise, it's Carolyn on the show. <laughs> yeah. She's great, though. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Well, 
we've got Adam and we want to we want to welcome you properly mm. uh, so uh, Adam's from Denmark but mm. can you tell us a bit more about who you are what yeah. you do yeah so uh, yeah my name's Adam I live in uh, Elsinore in Denmark just across from where Mark lives in Helsingborg in Sweden it's like the sister city just a 20 minute boat ride uh, across the sound which is uh, nice I'm planting a church there with my wife Mette uh, a vineyard church we've been going for three and three and a half years and then I now I'd subtract a year and a half because of corona so only two years but uh, yeah mm. uh, and uh, we have a daughter uh, we had a daughter a little over three weeks ago now she's really cute which is fun yeah. yeah it's a new Big world stuff. yeah yeah we're so. surprised you made it I know. Yeah, and that yeah, you're I know. awake. I, I'm looking forward to being the the um, having kids because you have the, all these excuses. Being uh, yeah. uh, you know having children, there's all sorts of stuff in the way. So yeah, no, but it's nice. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I've known, uh, got to know Mark through. I think you guys came over when you heard about our church plant and pray yeah, for we us. Did Mark and yeah, Hannah. It was yeah, you both and you and me. Yeah. yeah, and that's been the start of a friendship, a beautiful friendship. That's so. the only time we've ever done that. We've gone somewhere else to pray for. I know. Hang on, I need to just finish that, that sentence because that sounds really bad. This yeah, is the only time no. we've ever gone to pray for people. That's not true. It's the only time we've gone to another town mm. to, 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 to pray for people, is it? Oof, I hope not, but one of it the few bad, then, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we will do that a bit more in the future. Yeah. It was really encouraging because we, we were planting a church in the city where there wasn't a lot of young people in mm. church and stuff. And then we were like, we heard this guy wrote to us from Sweden, like, we want to come and pray for like, all, mm. all, all right. And then all these young people who were passionate about church planting and about reaching people came over and prayed for us. That was really encouraging for us at that at that time. So yeah. Yeah. I never, I don't know if I've ever and said thank you, well. but thank you. Oh <laughs> well, no, you're not. But <laughs> all right, <laughs> I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. <laughs> young, <laughs> I'm really touched by that. Adam. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and yeah, that me and Mark would be in the yeah. same category. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So you've done a great interview. Thank what you. was it like? How uh, did you feel? I felt uh, a bit anxious going into it. I've uh, I've read another book by him, uh, by Bradley Chersak. So he's done this uh, recently, this trilogy of books called A Christ-like uh, God, A Christ-like Way, and A Christ-like Word. And I felt so anxious about it. We were just doing the interview about the Word, so I bought all the books mm. and tried to read all of them beforehand, just, you know, so I really knew what I was going into. But I only managed two of them, so... But I really recommend them. They're really good. The Christ-like God is just a, a great, um, great book, and he's just a very compassionate guy. He's Canadian. My, I have Canadian roots, so also I'm, it's easy for me to sympathize mm. with a yeah. person like him. And uh, I think a lot of the questions he's trying to answer are questions I've asked myself recently. And yeah, and I think if you really, if you want to get to know him a bit, I just really recommend going on YouTube mm-hmm. and finding his. Uh, he, he's done a talk called The Gospel of Chairs, or The Gospel in Chairs, where he uses two kind of, uh, what do you call them, clappable chairs? Mm. Where you can, yeah. Foldable chairs, yeah. Foldable chairs, that's the one. Uh, and I was watching this on my phone one night in, on, in my bedroom, and my wife came in and I was crying mm. because, and I tried to explain, look what he's doing with these chairs. The chairs. <laughs> the chairs. Goes, yeah, 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 look at and the chairs. And she felt this right away. Uh, <laughs> she was just kind of, yeah, are you all right? And uh, yeah, I'm I'm going to go out. Stop moving chairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really good. He he kind of just kind of does two versions of the gospel in chairs, where the one is kind of the one we've grown up with in mm. Western 
thought, and then he says, but maybe we could look at the gospel a different way, and wow. he shows it with a different way. Wow. And uh, that's the book, Christ Like God, is pretty much that story. Yeah. But it's really good, and uh, it really touched me, mm. and it's helped me a lot just when thinking about just preaching. How, how are we talking about God? How are we talking about who Jesus is and mm. who God is and what do we know about God? Uh, yeah. And so on. So it's it's really helpful. And this book is uh, this book we're talking about now is his focus on the Bible. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so, then there's also the one in the middle, Christ Like Way, which is about what does discipleship look like yeah. and so on. But I didn't get to read that one. No. So. Mm. so this is the Christ like word, word that we're yes. looking yeah. at today. Yes. Great. Yeah. So yeah. Let's get into it. Yeah. Let's let's do it. Enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Welcome Bradley. Uh Mr. Br- Dr. Bradley Jurisak. And that's Bradley to you. <laughs> yeah. Bradley, sorry. Yeah. That's uh, okay. <laughs> Great to have you uh, with us today on uh, this uh, podcast for V12. And uh, yeah, we want to get into a conversation about your book, uh, A More Christ-like Word. Um, but I think it would be nice just to have a quick introduction. Maybe if you'd like to say a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey in, in church, church planting, and uh, where you are now. And yeah, how would you just describe that? Sure. I um, I grew up in... Canada in a conservative Baptist church, and I was there until I was 20. And then I went off to an even more conservative evangelical college. That's where I met my wife, Eden. And I I did a bachelor's degree there, and then a master's degree there in biblical studies. And and, uh, I also took all their theology courses. And after, after college, I was in seminary, I was hoping, you know, to become teacher but the doors closed in that direction and opened up towards pastoring so i ended up being a pastor for 20 uh the first 10 was at my wife's home church which is a mennonite church and a baptist um background which was very interesting because i had been dabbling in calvinism and and the anabaptists were a, a difference and i i found their centrality on the gospels very convincing that they live the Sermon on the Mount or try to. Um, and so um, I did that for 10 years, youth work, young adults, outreach, and so on. And then um, and, and we shift through sort of church growth work into church planting. And so my wife and I planted a church with another couple called Fresh Wind Christian Fellowship. And it was sort of a vineyard flavor but it had a lot of people with abilities in full-time care, one-third of the congregation, and then also all their um, their care workers. So we had rows and rows of people in wheelchairs, people with autism, people with Down syndrome, you name it. And then um, their presence made it very joyful and noisy. And so then we found that this was attractive to addicts. And so we began to have a lot of alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, and so on also join us because they didn't feel judged. And um, and then when you invite those groups, then you're going to start getting the poor, um, Some sometimes just the working poor, sometimes the homeless, um, who went off and, with a friend of ours, Ward Drape, started their own street church. And then, uh, and then, of course, children 
were running around all in the midst of this. And especially the kind of kids who couldn't sit still in a church found it easier to be with us. So that's what, that, that was a, an amazing church planting experience for us. I, I loved it. Um, in 2008, there was a tragedies, overdoses, suicides, a terrible murder, an abduction, you know, like the kind of stuff that happens in those communities. And I was overwhelmed and I had to step back. Uh, I, I was ser- seriously traumatized. So my wife, um, she, she stepped into the role sort of like a mama, you know, and really brought healing to the church over the next five years while I went off and did my PhD studies trying to work out some of these hard questions. I trust God, you know, uh, is God good? And then what do we make of these tragedies and the evils we see in the world if God is indeed good? Somehow, um, my studies in, in a particular French philosopher mystic, Simone Weil, W-E-I-L, um, really saved my life. I mean, she, her, the way she saw the cross uh, really gripped me. So uh, a side note that to that is all during that time, I was also being mentored by a monk at an Eastern Orthodox monastery. And eventually, um, eventually I joined that monastery. I, well, the congregation that meets there, I still live with my wife at home. Um, she's pastoring in another church called the bridge um, with some vineyard background there. Brian Dirksen on all those folks had established now she's half time there. Meanwhile, I'm a monastery preacher uh, with these Eastern Orthodox guys, and it, I really uh, I love that. It feels like a safe harbor for me, especially around the question of the goodness and mercy of God. And um, I was also I happily I, I didn't have to return to pastoring. I I still have a I still have a twitch around uh, my relationship to pastoring. And so I'm, I joined the academic world. And so I teach biblical studies, the philosophy at a little school called St. Stephen's University in Canada, ssu.ca. And I'm a lecturer with a program there as well uh, called the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice, irpj.org. So I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture now at that university. And um that's kind of my life. Well, well, thanks for for sharing. So, uh, <clears throat> what we're going to talk about is uh, this book, uh, a more Christ-like word, um, which is, I guess, the third installment in uh, in a series of books you've been doing. Uh, that started with a more Christ-like God and also a more Christ-like way. Uh, I guess they're pr- pretty recent. You've been writing them over these past few years. Um. So I was just wondering if you maybe you could talk a little bit about what are these books about, what you're trying to get across, and uh, yeah, what what kind of journey uh, are you describing here? Uh, Very good, yeah. So I I think the 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 big arc of the trilogy is obviously the common theme, something more Christ-like. So in the in the first book, I address the ways in which. We've had false images of God that really damage us and our society and the church. Images of God that are either absent, absent, distant, and silent, like an absentee landlord, or, or a father who's left his family and the kids are now struggling. Others, uh, 
have an image of God that's that's very toxic, very angry, very punitive, a tyrant king or a punishing judge. And uh, and then and then still others sort of think of God as their fairy godmother, or a genie in a bottle. And if I would just pray right and worship, look at him right at my three wishes, you know. And what I want to say is that Jesus came and he's the image of God, that Jesus is the perfect image of God. And when we line up Jesus Christ as the image of God, it, it begins to correct and heal our broken images. And this dramatically affects um, how we experience faith and how we live as God's people in the world. And I know that most Christians would say, oh, yes, Jesus is the image of God. And then, but we're talking about who they see God to be. And, and I can see a huge disparity. So, so we would say uh, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Um, mm. or they share one divine identity, exactly the same. The second book, A More Christ-Like Word, then turns from the image of God to the, the, the Jesus way of living. And so what is it to be human? So what is it to be God? It's to be like Jesus. What is it to be human? It's to be like Jesus. And so the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is a program of recovery of human nature, that if we will follow Jesus, it's that the Jesus way is not just a good way to be a Christian. It's, although I recommend it for Christians, and at least on my continent, the disparity, again, is huge, you know. The Jesus way of being human is nonviolent, forgiving, practices enemy love, Whereas the verb of Christianity, at least to my the the southern of Canada, you go over the border, and and evangelicalism has been married to militarism, patriotism, and nationalism, and that's an idolatry. Uh, it's apostasy in a sense. It's it's departing from the Jesus way, and yet um, and yet even someone like Gandhi said, you know, he he read the Sermon on the Mount every day, and he said if if Christians would just read this, practice it. In fact, if the world would live it and practice it, um, this would ha- this is how we would be truly human. And and so it's the Jesus the Jesus way of being human. And so it's not so much about like how will I do this, but it's how did Jesus do it? And then can I hear him say, "Follow me"? Mm-hmm. The third installment, a more Christ-like word, addresses this this uh, mistake made in identifying the Bible as the Word of God when the Bible itself says Jesus is the Word of God. So I believe that the Bible is a Holy Spirit-inspired testimony, person of Jesus Christ. But when we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about a person who grew a beard when he was 18 and walked around Galilee preaching uh, the kingdom of God. So, So then um, in that book, what I'm what I'm asking is, how did Jesus read the scriptures? And we have some on the road to Emmaus. He opened the scriptures and showed his disciples how Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures point to him. Mm. How they prefigure his death and resurrection, and that. Reading the Bible, what I call the Emmaus way, is reading every book of the Bible in the way Jesus did. And then I show people in the book how Jesus does that, how his apostles did it, and how the early church did it, especially in the second century, very consciously, where Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died and rose again 
according to the scriptures. And he's talking about what we call the Old Testament. So um, um, I understand that it, this is less of a problem in Denmark, but but again, in, in North America and Western evangelicalism in general, um, we I was raised to think that a faithful reading of the Bible was very literal. And that's just not how Jesus or Paul or John or Irenaeus or Melito of Sardis how they read it. They're always looking. In fact, they would say, you've not read the Bible as scripture. Will you see how it points to the passion of the Christ? Mm. So that's what I'm wanting to train people in because no one taught me until I was in my fifties. <laughs> so um, I think it's, I think they did a good job of teaching it. It just needs to be made known. Yeah. I just, before we move into your book, I just, I was just thinking about, because I am also, I, I love reading about, we could call it the historic church or the patristic church or uh, the Orthodox church or whatever, uh, whatever we want to. But I think what I'm seeing here also, I guess, in Western society is a lot of uh, the crisis of modernity, whatever we want to define po- postmodernism as, uh, has been, you know, deconstructing. I see a lot of even Christian teachers getting really good at deconstructing, but I'm just really interested in these and what you also pointed to in your book, these uh, answers that, uh, like these, there were church fathers were thinking about these questions in the year 400 and actually came up with some pretty solid answers and some pretty interesting questions to counter those questions. And I I just thought uh, if, yeah, I don't know if there's a question in there, but well, I have an answer. Yeah, great. <laughs> to the question you didn't ask, I think. Yeah. Um, I want to say that all three of my books are addressing uh, a problem that grew out of modernity, that, that modernity absolutely co-opted the evangelical church for sure. And, the, and, and that's created a, a twofold problem that I'm trying to address in all three books. One problem is you've got conservative Christians doubling down on bad theology, bad anthropology, and bad biblical interpretation, thinking that's faithfulness, but it's become abuse. And this is where even even in the in the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Protestant churches, there there can be a, a kind of fundamentalism. And so I'm wanting to bring a gentle word of correction to the fundamentalists, so they'll stop using the Bible as a sledgehammer and throwing God under the bus. Um, as as a real tyrant and a monster god, really. So I'm trying to pu- pull them back from that ledge if I can. At the same time, I'm also looking at the progressives who are in this deconstruction work, and it's like a, a it's like a kite that's cut its own string, and now it's flying off in the breeze, thinking I'm free, I'm free, and then it lands in a tree and crashes. And what we're what we're getting then is is sort of like post post Christian. Um, reactions that are still fundamentalist and uh, you're rejecting you're rejecting a fundamentalist way of reading but you're still attached to it and that's why you're finding the bible toxic and god scary and jesus irrelevant and, and so i'm wanting to call to them and say actually um what if we what if what if there's a better anchor for your kite <laughs> that's that's and, and and what if Jesus' program of deconstruction was far more thorough than yours? 
Like you don't, he's, he, he brings the new wine skin that, or the new wine that bursts the old wine skin. And, and he's the one who said, um, this is, we're going to do an exodus out of slavery. And a lot of them think that, oh, I'm in an exodus. It's like, well, it's a fairly bland exodus, but like, if you want to be thorough, let's do what Jesus did. How about this? Death and action. There's deconstruction for you, you know? So it's all there. It's just, it's just that both the conservatives and the progressives are sort of trapped in that same little modernist, and I, I even want to say postmodern is just uber modern. Yeah. Um, they're still trapped in that same courtroom. It's like, what are you even doing in there? You know, that's the wrong story altogether. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have an illustration of this. A friend of mine called the phone and he, and, and I was so excited about a short story I'd read by Tolstoy, you know, the Russian novelist. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I started talking about Tolstoy and I'm into it for about five minutes and and then he and then it becomes clear that he thought i meant toy story the pixar movie and i thought this is classic it's like the conservatives and progressives are like woody and buzz lightyear arguing inside of toy story but it's the wrong story and and the real deal's over in tolstoy you know so um and and where do i find that that the historic faith well i find it in these well, obviously, but also the early church fathers, um, Irenaeus, who was a grand disciple of John. I find it in Athanasius, early fourth century, where he's the, he's giving us our doctrine of the Trinity and of, of of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the Cappadocians um, later that century. They, these are our spiritual fathers, and and I find we've never even heard of them. We're so busy working out like Luther and Kelvin and all this stuff from the 1500s. That's a little bit late to the game. And so even I come out of a Reformation background that, that I really appreciate, but I also want to say it's old, but it's not ancient. And I needed, I needed to go back to the roots. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was just, um, just thinking about that, that there's this, uh, you probably know it, but maybe the people listening, but the philo, philokalia, how do you say it in English? Yeah. Philokalia. I remember, uh, I, I've read, a, I have a part of it. It's like a huge, but I have like the first volume or something I, I read in. And I just remember reading about, I think there was, this was some of the, some uh, Orthodox uh, monks that kind of saw what was going on in Western Europe with the Enlightenment movement and uh, also the Sola Scriptura and all these uh, philosophical ways of approaching God. Like when you cut yourself off from the, the historic church, you have to find your your base somewhere else. And they kind of base it in Enlightenment thought and so on. And then they they kind of produce this book, Philokalia, which is really strange for my Western eyes to read, but really interesting the way they just kind of they they provided answers there that I'm I'm finding or that they, they compiled this book with a lot of great answers from the church fathers and mystics from throughout the church which is yeah it's just uh and, and just, for those who don't know about that it's it, it it's a collection of writings from the early church from people who who went and fasted and prayed and lived out in the wilderness in the deserts um great saints of the Christian faith I think Ephraim of, uh, is has the most highest word count collection, and here's a guy who um, 
he knew about love. You know, he writes a book called Three Centuries of Love. It's 300 statements about love. And you just, you, you look through it and you're like, oh my goodness. Or he composes this beautiful prayer. And so a lot of our, like you say, the modern approach to theology has been very philosophical. But in the Orthodox Church, our primary theological training comes through the hymns mm. and through the prayers. And so so uh, St. Ephraim composes this prayer for, for Lent that yeah. you were meant to pray every day. It's, it's uh, O Lord, Master of my life. Uh, here's my paraphrase. Deliver me from a spirit of idleness, despondency, ambition, and vain talking, and instead give me a spirit of purity, um, uh, humility, patience, and love. Mm. Help me to see my own faults and not to judge my brother. I mean, like, that's just <laughs> when you start praying that every day. Um it begins to embed in you in a way that a thousand scholarly articles don't have the same impact. So, yeah. Oh, we could talk about this for a while, but I think we should probably get into your, uh, your book a little bit more, the Christ okay. word. Uh, so I was just, we, you've already touched a bit on the kind of the, the things you're trying to challenge or address the problems you're seeing, but I think it would be interesting because you touch a bit on it uh, in your book, but just kind of, the history of the Bible and like inflection points uh, along the way to this book that we can buy in a bookstore now, that's kind of a compilation of various books all in one. And we think about it as this kind of homogenous kind of piece of literature. Yeah. Single piece of literature. So maybe we could just, uh, yeah, like, I don't know if you find there's like interesting historic points we could touch on or think. Sure. Yeah. There's a few important points. So first of all, um, you know, we've got the the Old Testament, which includes both Hebrew scriptures, but also included Greek translations of Hebrew scriptures that, that don't have in Hebrew anymore. Uh, Luther, of course, and the reformers took those out or marginalized them. They called them Apocrypha, but up until the 1500s, they were the Bible. <laughs> so, um, for, so we have, we, Jesus and his apostles have their scriptures and their favorite collection of those scriptures was called the Septuagint. It was a translation that that's what's quoted 90% of the time in the New Testament. So they had their scriptures and they saw their scriptures um, as, as being an epic saga um, that comes to its climax in the arrival of the Messiah that we identify with Jesus of Nazareth. So they've got those scriptures, and for several hundred years, you know, that's primarily how they would preach the gospel. They would preach the gospel from the, our Old Testament, and and all the ways that every book um, points to the much greater fulfillment of its expectations in Jesus. So, so that um, that every time you see the people of God suffering in the Old Testament it prefigures the much greater suffering of Jesus on the cross. Every time you see them win a victory, even a dubious victory where they're killing people, it prefigures the much greater victory of Jesus who kills death instead of people, you know? Uh, and every time you see injustice and betrayal and a critique of God's people prefigure much greater betrayal of Jesus by 
the Roman Empire, by the Sanhedrin, by his own disciple Judas, by the king, you know, that, that all of those injustices come to a head at the cross, but then they're overthrown by the cross. So, so that's the first stage. They're using their scriptures, the, the Jewish scriptures, to point to Jesus. Second stage is out of, out of as they're developing their own account of that we call the New Testament, it takes a long time for that to come together. So they needed a criteria or a shape for the New Testament to help them determine what should be in it. And what they called this was the canon of faith or the gospel. So they, you don't start with the New Testament and say, what's the gospel? You start with the gospel that they had received from Jesus through the apostles. They say, what is that? Ah, that, that God sent his son and uh, he's the incarnate one who uh, we identify as, as human and we identify as God. And this one dies on a cross, rises again. And now we proclaim him the, the, the uh, Messiah of Israel and the savior of the world. So this is, you can, you can read what the gospel is from, let's say the account um, of how they preached it in the book of Acts or how Paul summarizes it at the first Corinthians 15. These are examples of, of that. But, but the, the gospel predates even the very first book of the New Testament by 25 years, probably, at least. So they already have a gospel, and, and they call that the canon of faith. A canon is like a ruler. It's, it, it's a measuring stick. Using that ruler, they begin to see which books that the apostles are generating serve that purpose. And that's how they pick what will be in the New Testament. So now it takes some time, but like they don't really kind of come to a consensus on what's in the New Testament until 395. So it's developing. They're debating. Some churches are arguing for certain books to be authoritative. Others are saying, oh, we're not so sure. But by 395, we have our New Testament so now you've got these scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, and they're being used in the churches. They have your, their little library of these scriptures, and they will bring them out for worship. And so now what gives shape to these scriptures, what is their framework, is, is worship itself. We need every time we meet for the liturgy, we need to tell the story again, the gospel, the canon of faith, and we will do that using these books. And so the books are used in context of telling the gospel story. That really helps us because you're like, why do we read from Genesis? Because it's part of telling us. Why are we reading the Psalms? Because they tell us about the story. So so they're, they're creating, so, so it's a life of worship in which the gospel is proclaimed is like what binds together their use of the scriptures. And then finally, I would say, fine, we'll call it finally, um, you know, we get the Gutenberg press and the Bible is printed and bound. And there's an upside to that. It means it becomes more accessible to people. But there's a huge downside. You lose the framework. Now the framework is a leather binding. That's all, that's all we have. It's like, what this book together? <laughs> leather um, or paperback or whatever. And, and now you have all these sections of the Bible 
arranged by genres. But that doesn't tell you, that doesn't give you the framework or the reference point of the, of the story itself. And so I call that the biblification of Scripture. That is, when the framework of Scripture moves from the gospel into a binding machine, and now anybody can pick up a Bible, that's good, but they can open it anywhere to any page, and they don't, they don't necessarily see the gospel framework, the big story that this is the whole thing is an epic saga of the uh, um, that calls in Jesus, and that every er, everything serves that purpose. You you don't notice that just by picking up a book, you know. So um, I don't want to stop printing Bibles, but I do want to remind people that there's a way to read it. Um, mm. That and then unless you read the Bible as the story of Jesus Christ. And his gospel, you're not reading it as scripture. It only becomes scripture to us in that context for Christians. And I understand that Jews don't read it that way. Although this was a Jew, his apostles were Jews, the early church was Jewish, and they believed that that the that the fulfillment of Judaism was found in Jesus Christ. And this predates Christianity. And so I don't want to just say, well, uh, now it's not a Jewish book anymore. It's like, of course it is. The Jewish New Covenant from Jeremiah 33, you know. But but um, Christians, including uh, Christians, had a way of reading it that they inherited from Christ. Yeah, and and also I was just thinking I was reading a little bit uh, through it, and also I guess some of the traditions of the I think it's called Midrash. Mm-hmm. Is that like the 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 kind of the commentary on the Bible? Kind of a lot of the early Christian fathers kind of uh, use that in the in a I guess in the light of Christ. I guess reading. Well, midrash was a midrash was a Jewish way of of reading their scriptures. Yeah, where they would retell it and paraphrase it and fill in blankly. Christians could pick up on that too, and uh, but it, it's a Jewish tradition of reading that's very creative <laughs> and sometimes loopy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I was thinking uh, in the beginning of your book, you're talking about kind of five um, approaches that you bring to the Bible, or you think are healthy, good ways uh, in the, our reading of the Bible. Uh, yeah, and I picked those up probably from Pete Enns, who did the yes. forward. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you you want to go into that or you. Oh, we could do a short thing on each one. Maybe yeah. give me give me the headache. Give you a brief response to each one. On yeah, my so, thoughts about it today. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, let's do that. So the first one you talk about is genre calibration. What do okay. you mean by that? I mean that when we read the Bible, we need to pay very close attention to what genre is being used in a particular that when it's using myth, we read it as myth, not as like literal history. When we read it as history, we read it as history, but it's history that is prefiguring the Christ. When we read poetry, we remember it's poetry. It's all very simple in that sense, but there's a few things to be fine-tuned, like, for example, the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. They are theological reflections on his life, that have an agenda to telling the good news of me. And um, the epistles are not straightforward theology. These are sermons that use first century rhetoric, rhetorical skills. 
And, and it's important to learn what those skills are so that we're not just, you know, taking one verse out of Paul's letters and making a theology out of it based on a literal reading. Uh, that's not what you do with a sermon. And so, uh, and then Revelation as apocalyptic literature and, and how people have brutalized it and misused it. So genre is very important to pay attention to this, to, to what the authors intended by their use of a particular stuff writing all right and then the next one is christotelic that's a big one big word yeah so christotelic so you've got the word christ there and you've got telic uh, referring to telos or which means the end or fulfillment and so the idea is that we pull of the script from the end and by the end we mean christ um and and so now we will we we always Christian to read the Bible Christotelically means I I start with the life death and resurrection of Jesus and and that's my foundation the end is my foundation and now I go back into Genesis and I go how is Genesis directing us toward that end oh Genesis three fifteen the the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent okay. Okay, I'm reading that verse regardless of what the author knew or didn't know. That the end, the telos, the fulfillment of that scripture is going to be Jesus, and I'm, I'm responsible to read it in that way. All right, and then we have incarnational. Incarnational. I don't remember exactly what Pete was talking about there, but I suspect we would agree on two things that... It's pointing towards the incarnation of Jesus, but it's also that's also saying that this word is meant to become flesh in me, in the reader, that it's meant to be lived. And in fact, parts of scripture, there's a sense in which you can only understand it and interpret it rightly if you're living it. If you step into it, then it will begin to make sense. So it needs to become, the word becomes flesh um, in terms of practice. Uh, ecumenical. Ecumenical. That's referring to like, you know, um, in across the Christian tradition, we've got a lot of streams now. And to isolate into our own particular stream and read the scriptures from our point of view, is inadequate because we need each other. Paul calls us the body of Christ, and he says the hand should not say to the eye or vice versa, I don't need you. And so now that I'm in the, that I have spent time in the, in the world of the Baptists, in the Menachem and Anabaptists, that I've spent a lot of time um, with the Charismatics and now with the Eastern Orthodox, I'm realizing that that Christ has distributed revelation to each of us so that we'll need each other. And this is very similar to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that when he's speaking to the seven churches, um, with each church, he starts out with where he identifies himself. But he takes one image from chapter 1. And he gives it to each church. So the churches will need to network to get a whole picture of who Jesus is. And I believe that's true today. Awesome. And then the last one is pilgrimage. 
um, pilgrimage that's that's you know seeing both scripture and our lives as a journey. And so, in terms of the scriptures, um, there is a developing story as the people of God are marching through history, and at certain points they've not yet met Jesus, but they're anticipating Him. And how are they doing that? And then, so there's a developing revelation even of who God is as they accumulate more experiences of God and their point of view changes as go. Um, at some point they think he's an, a, he's a tribal warrior, you know, and, but even, even like someone like David who practiced his faith as a tribal warrior begins to get insights in the Psalms that no, this God loves the whole world and it's not just for us and that there's a blessing um, well, and it's like, oh yeah, that's what the covenant with Abraham was all about, being a blessing to the world, you know, so they're developed, that's a pilgrimage, but also I'm on a pilgrimage, and and to see how, um, as I'm maturing, hope, or, or regressing, <laughs> uh, the scriptures speak to, speak to that, and, and to read it as somebody who's on the way, who's not arrived, and who's watching for what's coming up, and that the Spirit is shines a lamp on the pathway. So that's some thoughts about pilgrimage. Yeah. Thanks. So you, have, you ask a question in one, one of your chapters is called, what are we? We kind of ask after you've kind of you've spoken about some of the problems of the way we, uh, Scripture has been used or misused or whatever. Um, you ask the question, what are we? And I, I a lot of us in, in this network of the podcast are churchgoers, church leaders, church planters. And uh, I, I just wanted to ask the question, how, how do we, do you see a way to rehabilitate the Bible to us or maybe rather us to the Bible again or to the scriptures again? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's this awkward moment in relationships where uh, that's kind of what I'm riffing off there is how, let's say, you become friends with someone like I, I was just about best friends with Eden who eventually became my wife. But after being best friends for a, a few years and like walking around town and act, and then suddenly your, your hand bumps the, it's like, okay, hold her hand. And then you've got to ask the question, what are we as the, as the relationship shifts? And so I'm thinking that with, as an analogy for the scriptures, it's like, I used to believe, um, and it was in our faith statements, that the Bible is my final authority for faith and practice. That's that's in most evangelical faith statements. The Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. Like, yikes. Think about that. Um, and so as I came to see Jesus as my final authority for faith and practice— this changes my relationship to the Bible. Unfortunately, for many people, that's when they set their Bible aside. Like, okay, it's not my final authority, so now um, I'm just going to move on from the Bible. I'm going to break up with the Bible, you know. And I'm saying, no, that's not it. But we do need to identify. We need to identify uh, carefully what what that relationship is. And here's here's where I've come to um, that Jesus is my final authority. And I determine what that looks like through through three interdependent witnesses. So the 
Um, and those witnesses include the Bible, because that's where I that's where I learned the whole story of Jesus, really, in a sense. But only in a sense, because actually I learned the story of Jesus from my church when I was a little boy, before I could read the Bible. So I guess I guess then the church, the body of Christ, not only my local fellowship, but throughout the centuries, becomes another witness. We call this the tradition, and people worry about traditionalism. By tradition, what I mean, with a capital T, is what is it that the Holy Spirit has revealed to the church over the centuries that we've come to accept as truth? Oh, now I've just brought up a third witness, the Holy Spirit, both superintended scriptures, um, inspires the, the witnesses to share their account, their perspectives. And the Holy Spirit also has spoken through and to his church through the centuries. And, and the Holy Spirit also indwells me. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're not going to understand this book unless the Holy Spirit illuminates it for you. You, you won't get it. These are spiritual thoughts. Oh, you'll be able to read the literal sense and get some principles, but that's not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is revealed in the scriptures as we gather as the church through the Holy Spirit shining a light in our hearts. So there we have the scriptures, church, and the spirit as three interdependent witnesses. When these three seem to be in alignment, I can... I can have some confidence that that they are showing me the will of Christ and so that Christ, that Christ becomes my final authority as these three witnesses point to him together. Um, sometimes I don't have all three in, in alignment, and that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means I'm less confident. <laughs> so... I'm really into, like, let's say with the scriptures, it's like, I want to know how the Holy Spirit taught the early church how to read these scriptures. There we have the, the three again. And I feel like I'm most confident when I'm closest to, to the source. So I'm not just going off on the end of a limb. I'm going down to the trunk, down the trunk of the tree, right to the roots. All right. So... Just to kind of follow up on that, so how would I, as like, as a church planter and from, a, I guess you would call a charismatic evangelical kind of mixed background, um, we're used to like stuff like Bible study groups, you know, like Bible studies and stuff. But how do, how would, um, I, I have a small group I'm meeting with right now. I think there are four or five of us. You talk about something called minions, uh, the yeah. tradition of, in Judaism where you have to be at least 10 people around the scriptures to be able to read it, to have uh, everyone's voice in it anyway. So we're, right now we're reading the book of Jonah. Yeah. And, and uh, kind of inspired by reading your book, we've been asking question, how is Jonah a prefiguration of Christ? Yeah. How is he different? Like what kind of, what kind of overlap? And we're seeing lots of really interesting stuff. Like uh, there's the storm on the boat and Jonah's in the bottom of the boat sleeping. And we're like, Hey, we're, where have you seen this story before? And we, we looked in the gospel. Oh, there's a story about Jesus in a boat sleeping and people waking him up, asking him to start praying or to stop, you know, do something about the storm. And uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, I, I think because I think I see a lot of people just kind of just giving up on the Bible thinking, you know, that's, I mean, it, 
yeah, because the Sola Scriptura, whatever, has kind of failed. There's a crisis of that. So I was just wondering if you have any uh, thoughts on how we could start using the Bible in a way that could perhaps, you know, re rehabilitate ourselves to that. What do we need to kind of repent from? Sure. Um, so I would say that here's two suggestions. So one, one suggestion is that whenever you're, you're using Scripture in church or in a small group or whatever, um, that you always attend to three layers of reading. And until you've attended to these three layers of reading, you're still, it's not scripture yet. It's just Bible. So the first layer of reading is the literal reading, not literalistic as in like, you know, um, the trees actually have hands that clap. No, nothing that's silly. Literal, the literal reading is simply what did the author intend us to hear? like the one who's writing it. But we also recognize that the Spirit is speaking to the author and they're not aware of. So, so you can't stop there. But you do start there. What's the author communicate? Second, the moral reading, and it's not moralistic, like we need to find some rules here to obey, or what's the law it's laying down. No, moral, the moral reading is how, how will this passage shape me into a Christ-like person? How will it help me be a better disciple of Jesus? That's the moral reading. So we've got author's intent is the literal. How it shapes me as a disciple of Christ is the moral. And But you're still not done. We've still not read it as scripture until we ask, how does this prefigure Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and his gospel? And so uh, Jonah is a fantastic example because Jesus actually refers to it. And he says, I mean, you know, you guys want a sign. You're not going to get a sign. Um, okay, I've given, I'm giving you one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must I be in the, the son of man must be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And, and, and it's like, what? That's how you read Jonah? Yes, that's how you read Jonah. Exactly what you were doing. Where, where are we seeing um, Jonah serving as sort of a movie trailer yeah. or a teaser? And the fantastic thing is it makes you read more carefully. And so when I'm reading Jonah more carefully, I'm reading the things Jonah is saying from the belly of the fish. And he's actually, he's, he's not just saying, went down into the depths of the ocean in the belly of a fish. He says, I went down into the heart of the earth. I went down into Hades. And you rescued me from there. Oh, death and resurrection. Whether or not Jonah actually died and rose from the dead in the book of Jonah, the language he uses poetically prefigures the act of death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you see that and the lights just go on, you're like, this is, this is awesome. And, and you're allowed to be creative. You don't have to say this is what Jonah means, although Jesus did. <laughs> but you could take a random one. I've not seen a sermon on how Samson holds his arms out and puts them on the pillars of the Philistine uh, temple at the end of his life and smashes the the, the pillars and the temple comes down on their heads and you're like, it's just really tragic end. But wait a minute. How is there a, a prefigurement here of something even greater? 
oh, Jesus reaches out his hands on the cross. And when he dies, he pushes down the pillars of Hades itself. And instead of all his enemies dying, his enemies are raised up to life with him in resurrection. You know, so it's, so there's a, there's a greater fulfillment, but even a contrast, but suddenly now this Samson isn't just an R rated thing that I'm going to hide from my kids. It's, it's like this fascinating um, type of something far more beautiful. Mm. Oh, that was one suggestion then. Read it in the three layers. Yeah. Moral, uh, literal, moral. The other suggestion is this. I, I, the lectionary is a collection of, it, it's, it's a way that the traditional church has ordered the stories of Scripture into that gospel framework using the feasts and fasts of the year. And I know in, in let's say, in a vineyard setting, you, you might not celebrate all of those, but some of them, you celebrate Christmas you celebrate Easter. These are these are feasts of the year. And what what's happening? The church has created these special days um, um, to tell the story of redemption course of the year in a cycle over and over and over. Then the lectionary takes scriptures and it plugs them in throughout the year and it connects them. Oh, here's a psalm. And we're going to put it together with this gospel passage. And we're going to put it together with this epistle. And these, th- these things together now um, will be this chapter in the year-long story. But we're going to tell it today so that all three of these together, we're going to tell the story today. And I would recommend then that every single, uh, let at least Sunday service uh, has a gospel reading. And that the point is always the good news of Jesus. Mm. We, have, we have no business as Christians teaching like leadership themes from the life of Moses. That's, that is not our job. Every single Sunday is to point to Jesus Christ and to use the scriptures to do that in the, in, in, with, the, with the gospel as a framework, with the, the, the liturgy as a framework, with the, the, the year as a framework. It's all... It's always drawing us back to that. And I just, I find that without that, we end up going in random rabbit trails about whatever our pet thing is. Oh, let's do 10, we could, 10 things on hearing God's voice. Well, that's important, but how is it going to point to Jesus? Hmm. And so, um, and it can, so then do. That would be good rehabilitation. Awesome. So I, I wanted, like, I have this one question at the end, which I thought would just be nice. It kind of goes outside the book, but sure. um, just just reading, because uh, one of the great church fathers of Denmark from the 1800s uh, read Irenaeus at one point. He, he stumbled upon Irenaeus, and he called it the great revelation where he realized the, the life of the church uh, was before the scripture that was beneath, like, he was a Lutheran, and he kind of, he stayed a Lutheran technically, but he kind of said, Church, the church life comes before scripture as authority, uh, which was interesting. But he uh, he also had a, a big thing about talking about using uh, Nordic mythology as like a prefiguration of Christ, looking for prefigurations of Christ in, uh, in I guess, pagan culture and uh, Gentile culture, because the Old Testament is very, uh, very Jewish. Uh, setting and I'm I'm not I don't come from the, the Jewish background so I just wanted to pick a brain on kind of uh, the how 
can we read uh, culture and and myths and past and present uh, Christ, Christotelically or, or using these things? Can we use culture as as scripture? Uh, I remember just discussing with another pastor once. We're talking about Easter eggs, and I thought, well, isn't this kind of a picture of of Christ emerging from from the grave, from the tomb? This little chicken coming out of the shell isn't it kind of no, that's it's paganism, and we have to get rid of it. Easter eggs, and I just thought it was kind of interesting because I don't see Christ as the type of revolutionary that kind of wants a clean slate to to do anything. He kind of he fulfills, I guess, as he fulfills the messianic promise. Does he also fulfill what the whole of creation is longing for? Well, that that is certainly how the the early church did it. So I'll give you an example. Um, so, first of all, right within the New Testament, when, when Paul is preaching in Athens, he quotes the hymn to Zeus, and, and he uses that to share the gospel with these guys. He's saying that, what is he saying? He's, he's saying that the gospel is, there, there's, there's hints of it in your own writing. And then he quotes that same hymn to uh, like in the pastoral epistles too. And you go back and you read the hymn to Zeus and you're like, wow, it even talks about you're pointing at this tomb and I'm saying, God's not in that tomb. He's alive. You know, that's in the Zeus hymn, right? So he picks up on that. And so that would be one example in the new Testament um, where, where, where there's an appeal to the pagan roots of the people he's addressing. Okay. So that's one point to make. Mm. Um, I would not then regard the hymn to Zeus as scripture, but but if they do, now this is radical, Simone Weil would say, then what is the Old Testament for a Hindu that points them to Jesus? Oh, it's going to be the Bhagavad Gita. That's their Old Testament. And your, your role would then be to say, how does the Bhagavad Gita find it? that the hopes and dreams and longings and needs and laments and you name it of Gita, are they fulfilled in Jesus? Of course they are because they're human beings and their religious practice is going to embed human cries. And it's, it's not Krishna who answers them. It's Jesus. So, so that's what she would say. Now I would say we give a preference to the old Testament as Christians um, even if we're not Jews, because Jesus was, you know, so he is, he's aware that his backstory is this Jewish journey that, that comes to a culmination in him in a, in a way that it wouldn't for Buddhism or Hinduism or, um, uh, or, or the pagan religions. But my goodness, in the early church writings, they, the fathers in their service, always using like Homer's Odyssey from the Greek poem. And they're like, you know, Homer is taking this ship and he's got to pass through this narrow strait. And there's like a whirlpool that's going to suck the ship down on one side. And there's rocks that are going to dash the ship on the other side. And, and, and he passes through there. And, and that's like Jesus walking us between temptations. Oh, but then the sirens come and they're like these mermaids calling the people to jump in and into the ocean and die. And um, so he has all his people plug their ears to that, but he, he ties himself to the mast of the, of the ship 
and they're like, and this is like the cross, you know, they did. So they're not afraid to do that. And it's just like, you know, if the people who gathered our new Testament and gave us the doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity are able to do that as a way of appealing to pagans who had grown up reading Homer so they can relate, then we can too. Modern men, this is what, what is Lord of the Rings? What is the Chronicles of Narnia? This is Tolkien and Lewis practicing that. They're drawing all these classical kind of um, uh, Greek and, and Norse themes into a story. They're, they're creating their own, their own story out of those themes to tell the gospel. It's, it's quite remarkable. So, yeah. So, so yes, um, the Jewish Old Testament is primary because that's Jesus' own backstory. And um, historically, Christianity treated that as scripture and not these other things, but they made abundant use of it as illustrations to help make a connection. All right. I guess that's all we'll manage for this time, but it was a real pleasure, pleasure talking to you, Bradley. And uh, thank Likewise, you. Adam. For your time. Great uh, to yeah. meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Well, welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with brad jerzak and adam mm. great interview yeah Thanks. well done uh i noticed that the sound was a bit glitchy there might be a word or two that, that dropped out if you have questions about it just write to mark and he'll we'll fill in the word we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> fill in the word somehow. it's a game yeah. it's a game guess the word mark mark will just pluck any word and yeah. see if it makes sense yeah. guess what brad was talking about but uh, yeah so much to reflect mm. on so much to dig into so much that was helpful. Yeah, um, I listened to it three times. Have Just, you? Yeah, I, I needed to. Yeah, it was so much. Yeah. Uh, I've listened to it twice and I've just made so many notes. Uh, I don't really know what was a highlight. It was just all like, oh, I want to talk about this. I want to reflect yeah. on this. But yeah. just before we get into that, I'll ask you, Hannah, in a moment what grabbed mm. you. But what did it feel just being with, with Brad? Was it nice? Was he was he friendly? He was very friendly. Uh, yeah, he was. It was. He was an easy interview. He was very helpful. When I was kind of stumbling into my questions, he was, I, I know where you're going, and yeah. I think I know what you mean, and that was really helpful. And you know, it's not always great meeting. I've read some of his stuff, and I, I really enjoy it. And it's not always meeting easy meeting someone you admire, but it was. No. This was very yeah very easy, and yeah yeah. It felt like you guys could have just get going for like hours yeah i went on a bit long so i could tell by the end when i stopped the interview was like i gotta go and the food didn't get oh, to he was ready <laughs> was he ready to go yeah. <laughs> so thanks if you're listening bradley thank you for taking the time yeah uh, i mean he, if he was yeah he could have been like just pointing at the screen because yeah. you do it on zoom like pointing at the watch i've got to go no more questions, <laughs> no more questions. <laughs> it was a really awkward position to be in if you if you like on a zoom yeah. podcast conversation oh. you can't get out of it but yeah. It, it, he <clears throat> yeah it sounded like you guys had a really great time and mm. 
uh, could have gone on for hours, but let's uh, let's get into it. So um, I'm going to just turn it to Hannah. Uh, so you've listened to it three times. Yeah, it's got to be a record. <laughs> uh, yeah. What what grabbed you? What was helpful? What what stood yeah, out? Yeah, I think the first thing that I want to say that grabbed me was just his personal story when he talked about pastoring a church with a lot of people on the margins of society. And the beauty with that, but also the trauma that came with journeying with those people through life. Um, and then kind of how he needed to step back from pastoring and, and do other things. And I, I just sensed that his kind of journey with all these questions came from a very genuine place where he just really asked the questions, is God good? What's Jesus like? What are we supposed to do as people following him? Like... A healing journey and a humble journey. Mm. And that, that helped me listen to his kind of yeah, his thoughts later mm. on as well. Mm. It's not just an intellectual picking everything apart for because I'm clever. Yeah. It's something deeper. Yeah. Um, and I think we all can recognise that journey in different ways. Like when it comes from the heart, I really need to know. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was the first thing that just spoke yeah. to me. In this, the tone of the podcast as well, exactly. it was very much like uh, I was saying to you, it felt quite pastoral, it was like inviting people in. Mm. Mm. Uh, so in that healing sense that, you know, many of us are wrestling with some of these questions yeah. and yeah. perhaps giving ourselves a hard time over it. Uh, some, you know, some people really struggled with these questions and mm. around the Bible and around interpretation and, 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 have, and have left. Mm. Um, but just that it was rooted in a journey of who is who is this God, this, mm. you know, this loving God. And you yeah. felt that kind of invitation, mm. didn't you? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And I think also just talking with him, uh, the impression from both reading his book and, and talking with him is that uh, he's very much on a journey still and he's and acknowledging that mm. in it. And he says, there's still some stuff I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, but I've found like... Uh, I found a new road to walk by. I don't know where it's going to end, but I know this is this is a better road or yeah. something yeah. to to walk on. So I think that was also just something that kind of struck me in the conversation and in, in reading his book. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Mark? What did you? Well, I think it's a fascinating journey. Like here, I would have loved to have heard more about it. But his journey from going from I don't know what tradition he came from from the beginning. Baptist, I Baptist, think. yeah, mm. uh, into like the Orthodox um, Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and I was like, "How does that happen?" And at the same time, like I felt myself being really—I don't know whether it's because I've just been exposed to more books or more more thinking from that part of the church, but it's it's very fascinating to me. Uh, so uh, you know, just that journey mm. that he's made. Um, I thought yeah. I thought it was really interesting, uh, you know, the idea that there's so much to learn from different traditions. I think he says it actually about mm. ecumenism that mm. no one tradition has got a lock on these no. things, and I don't think anyone would go out and well, maybe they would go out and say that, but but just to to remember that, you know, I think he said that God reveals or gives revelation to all the churches, and it's when we come together. Yeah, mm. I loved that. You know, that we see mm. Christ in his fullness or we understand the scriptures in his fullness. And I think that journey I would love to have heard more more about. And I was mm. like, mm. But, yeah, definitely I'm just feeling myself fascinated with some of the thinking. Some, like you say, they've got great questions mm. in the East, you know, other mm. parts of the church that we've been asking ourselves. Yeah. Uh, fascinated to hear what, what thoughts have been had. Ancient ones, but also yeah. what people are talking about now in other traditions. Yeah. 
that was just initial initial stuff really yeah, yeah. what about you adam like, what was the well i think um I, in the foreword of the book we talk about it, these five kind of different approaches to it i think were were helpful uh, reading the book, uh, I have a I have a small group in uh, in the church, or I just meet with a couple other guys, and we, mm. uh, we talk about how life is, and then we just do like a little part of the Bible each. And I started we were reading the book of Jonah, mm. and we just started reading it like Brad was talking about. Where is Christ in this story? Mm. What does it? What's if we understand Christ as the truth that everything else kind of aims towards? Uh, so we started reading the book of Jonah through that and it was just fun realizing that there's the we were reading chapter one and there's a story about how uh, the storm comes Jonah's on the ship and there's a storm coming and then everyone's praying and panicking mm. and then there's someone sleeping at the bottom of the boat during the storm mm. and um, wh where have we heard that where have we seen this picture before mm. we've seen this motif before and oh mm. Jesus was sleeping in that boat but when he got up, it wasn't a question about him being thrown overboard. He was the Lord of the sea. And so yeah. we were talking about lo looking for Christ in the scriptures and not um, using the scriptures to uh, to describe Christ, but using Christ as kind of the key to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. I think that that was really helpful for us. Yeah. And uh, actually a lot more, I wouldn't, I don't know if fun is the right, it's mm. more interesting way of yeah. reading it. Mm. Uh Because you can see, oh, there's, there's something here that looks like Christ and there's something here that still isn't completely like him but mm. there's these types and these mm. uh i guess you call sketches mm. of yeah. christ that are before he comes mm. uh so that, that was really helpful just in a kind of how do we use this in a practical way and not just asking questions but how do we start walking on this kind of road so yeah. i think those the, the christotelic way of reading it that everything in the bible is pointing towards mm. christ mm. uh is is really helpful and actually fruitful yeah yeah. And he, he, he is saying at some point, like we say that um, the Bible is the word of God, mm. uh, but actually the Bible says that Jesus is the word of God. Mm. And just that kind of uh, shift yeah. to from the Bible to Jesus. Mm. But he's also not taking, just throwing the Bible away. Mm. He's saying it was three keys, wasn't it, to, to understand Jesus. And the Bible was one of them, church tradition or, mm. uh, yeah, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah. So the Bible is still very um, there, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the aim is Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that was a helpful I think way so. of talking yeah, about it. I agree. I think as well, like we, I mean, if we can be vulnerable on this, like a lot of us in our generation, not always had the easy relationship with the Bible. You know, trying to work it out and trying mm. to, help, you know, feeling there's a tension between make uh, enabling it to make sense to. The time that we're in but also mm. honoring its past mm. and honoring it you know the purposes for why things are written and when, yeah. you know it's just been a yeah it's been difficult to talk about at times um, mm. and some of our traditions have been unhelpful and helpful in ways and yeah you talked a lot about deconstruction didn't he as well yeah um, I, I found that section really helpful mm. How, uh, he was talking about fundamentalism, wasn't he? And how the con conservative way of reading the Bible and understanding faith is extreme, <laughs> but also the very progressive way of like just throwing the Bible out the door and not reading it again. Mm. It's also very extreme. So you end up being a fundamentalist uh, in, both, uh, mm. in both ways. Mm. And then he was talking about that there is um, a middle way where we're anchored in something 
different. He talked about the kite uh, mm. being anchored somewhere. But I found it... Um, I just wondered if we could help each other. Like, what did he mean with um, deconstructing in a Jesus way? Mm. What is that? Like, how do we do it in a, in yeah. a good way? Oh, uh, he, I don't know if we mentioned it much in the interview, but in the book he's, uh, he talks about how Jesus uses scripture and then kind of uh, asks some questions to it or changes kind of the meaning. I think the most mm. famous one we could use is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said again and again and says, you've heard it is written that, mm. uh, you know, um, d- you shall not kill. But mm. I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, mm. you're already guilty of killing. So he's he's not just... Uh, saying um, one thing, he's he's uh, he's actually kind of in conversation with the Bible. He's he's yeah. saying there's something deeper than just on the literal level. And uh, yeah, um, there's there's yeah. He, he does that a couple of places. I think it's really helpful uh, looking looking at some of the uh, the the stuff he he talks about. There's another one I'm trying to think about. <laughs> uh, I forgot, sorry. Yeah, but the way Jesus... And I guess, I, I think you mentioned that as well, just to be anchored in the in the tradition that's mm. not just the modern mm. way of thinking, that's also a bit mixed with philosophy and all those mm. things, but being deeply rooted in the long history of the church and how the Holy Spirit has been revealing things mm. for a long time. So we then, we're mature enough to kind of battle with the scripture yeah. mm. and deconstruct it in a... In a healthy way, maybe, mm-hmm. than just like. Yeah. And I think also he's talking about the context of of scripture is the context of worship, not just the leather mm. binding or mm. the context of whatever question. But he's putting it where the church traditionally has had it, if we go before five hundred years ago, anyway, mm. uh, as a it's a part of worship, the same way as our songs, our hymns are a part mm. of worship. Yeah, in the same way that. Uh, uh, the sacraments or, or mm. you know, communion is a part of worship. Mm. It's it's in that context that we, we use it because it's in the context of worshipping God and worshipping Christ that, yeah. mm, that the scripture is really, uh, that's its proper place. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I think that's very helpful. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Not so much. Was he saying that um, <clears throat> before, uh, you know, the Bible was put in the printing press, had leather binding was he saying that the bible was more like a library so like a collection of i don't know scrolls or books that mm. weren't put together and churches mm. would have them like like that because i mean if that's the reality that that's obviously going to have a, an enormous impact on how you handle scripture mm. physically mm. you know as much as you know how you you know handle it in in worship in in practice was that what you're saying like that's how it I'm. I'm not quite sure. I'm not, I just know this part that it would be more and more normal for someone to have a family Bible. That the the Bible would be could be situated outside a church because it was so expensive producing a Bible, and sometimes it would just be the Gospels. Mm. It would be on the altar, open, mm. or it would be the Book of Psalms or something. Mm. Mm. But this definitely changed it, and I, I think Bradley says it. He's not against people having Bibles mm. and so on, but it just changes the context completely. Mm. that uh, you, you start having family Bibles and then uh, as we, the years go on, everyone has a personal Bible mm. uh, where they can, you know, sit and make their own interpretations. Mm. Mm. And I, uh, I think he's, he's saying that the, it, that comes with the cost mm. yeah. and that, that has a cost, even though there's some, definitely some good things about it. Mm. It's just, mm. and it be, yeah, and like you're saying, it's not, 
the, the canon of, of books uh, goes from becoming like something you could pick out in a library to this kind of definitive compilation of what the Christian faith mm. is about or so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just hearing you say that, I think so often we become lonely in our deconstructing mm. journey. Mm. And you shared a story before about, I, I don't know what you would call it, minions. Well, yeah, he was minions. talking about it, yes, yeah. So, so he talks about it in the book, he says minions, not like the little yellow guys. No, I was, but it's, <laughs> that's it's, what I said. <laughs> yeah, it's different. It sounds like it, but it's not the same spelling. <laughs> but it's a, a Jewish tradition that he mm. cites uh, where you have to be at least 10 people uh, together around the scriptures to be able to talk about it and mm. have... Uh, and study it. So uh, he had a friend that was walking on the street once and uh, he was called inside by uh, this guy, he said, uh, a Jewish guy, and there were nine of them in there and they needed one more. Yeah, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. They needed one I more for, to complete that minion. Uh, and he said, well, I'm, I'm not Jewish. Well, it doesn't matter. We just need, you don't need to say anything. We just need 10 people in here. So yeah. I thought it was a funny story, but uh, that, <laughs> that idea of, of interpreting in communion, I think... Mm. Basically, that that's also why we need church. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's knowing the depth and the width of the love of God. Mm. You you need more than just one person interpreting yeah. the way they understand it from their own background story. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And inviting really everyone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've so often just been um, talking about it from the platform, one perspective, mm. often quite privileged, a bit white, you know, <laughs> like inviting everyone mm. to actually say, this is how I read it. Mm. Um, we've had some beautiful stories in our church from doing that, just identifying with different characters and just like, I feel like I'm the woman at the well or mm. no, I feel like I'm the Pharisee in this mm. story. Like, you know, we need it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we need to go out and bring, if we're not enough though, if yeah. we're to follow in the, the tradition of the minions. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to, yeah. we need to go out in the street and drive people do that, in. Mark. Yeah. Do Is that well. my job? Yeah, I think it's your job. <laughs> yes. And I think also what, what the cost of that for a person as myself being a, a church leader is that I have to let go a little bit of my own authority. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a, also a healthy thing, I think. And say, well, uh, it's not that we have 10 opinions that can never... Everyone can have their own thing, and but it's about having that conversation and talking about it. And I think always that's why he's pointing to tradition as well. Mm. We need to to study it in the tradition of of our the fathers of our faith and the mm. mothers of our faith. Mm. What did they they see? Uh, are we giving them a voice in our conversation as yeah. well? Mm. I think that's also very helpful. Yeah. So we don't reinvent Christianity all the time. No. Uh, we thought about it when we were planting a church. I've noticed many church plants and you know, many churches if you go on their homepage they'll have their own statement of faith mm. yeah which is interesting because I, I never i thought we had a statement of faith but it seems like we have we want to because we want to we want, we want it to be authentic yeah we want to formulate our own statements of faith so that we you know it, it, it's not just a thing where we just inherited but it's something mm. we uh we personally are invested in but i mm. think sometimes we we lose that that conversation with our forefathers mm. who who thought about these things in very mm. deep ways and, uh, and and suffered for it greatly also. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. If I just uh, sum a few things up. So what I'm hearing is that <clears throat> there's an invitation to go beyond, backwards, beyond the Reformation time, which mm. is really, you know, the, our, our inherited tradition or way of looking at the Bible has been really shaped by the Ref Reformation moment. 
but to go back beyond mm. and to see what uh, the early church has been, uh, how they interpreted and handled scripture. And also, I think what, what, what Brad was saying, um, how the Holy Spirit, it's quite important, what, what the Holy Spirit was saying to them yeah. at that time. Uh, we should honour, you know, in a, in a, to honour the generations to come. We need to honour the generations yeah. and how they encountered mm. God and how they heard, heard the Spirit, which we've not really been taught to do that. No, so I think, like broadening the timeline. It feels like the timeline has been short yeah. the last yeah. 10 years, the yeah. last 50 years. Yeah, yeah. I don't think God just like that's just for then. I think no. we're part of that fabric of of that of that narrative, that story. Mm. Uh, so, so I think that was just one of the takeaways: is that we yeah. need to kind of just, at least in this moment, this crucial moment of upheaval in the church, and people not knowing all the time what to do with scripture, not knowing what the church is or who mm. God is. I think that's one of the takeaways: is we need to plunge back into our our tradition. Yeah. And, and he did talk about tradition, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, he uh, did. Not in tradition of making things that shouldn't be central, <laughs> central, mm. but actually plunging back into the stories, the narratives, what God has been doing. Yeah. Um, and re, re, what's it? Re, I don't know, catapulting it back into our time. Mm. Could be really helpful for where we are now. Yeah. All right. I don't know where I'm going with this, but there's <laughs> so much to talk about and reflect yeah. on. I think we we need to bring it to a close. Um, I know you're going to have great conversations uh, in your with your friends, with your leadership teams, mm. if, if that's where you're situated, uh, with people you're journeying with. Um, we just encourage you if you're struggling to take those journeys. We've got we always offer a set of questions which are becoming a bit like a liturgy for you, <laughs> if or part of that. Mm. Uh, so we always like start with what did you hear because that's important that's kind of in synergy with the whole context of this podcast what what was god saying to you what was the spirit saying to you mm. um what does it mean um what was exciting what grabbed you what was challenging or difficult to hear mm. um what might this look like in relation to others and and the world uh and what are we learning about jesus uh from everything that we've we've heard and, and listened to so and what might your next steps be so we just encourage you to to go slow uh and uh and take that journey with others mm. so just to finish today adam's gonna finish with a, a blessing or a prayer yeah uh bradley mentioned it in our in our um conversation and i don't know about you guys but i always i'm always looking for good prayers and i try to bookmark them and, and, and this one is a really uh, great prayer by Saint Ephraim uh, who lived in, in uh, the Middle East back in the third and fourth century and um, it's a prayer that the Orthodox Church prays during Lent and uh, mm -hmm. I think it's great all year round actually mm -hmm. so I was thinking we could close with that yeah O oh Lord master of my life Grant that I may not be infected with the spirit of slothfulness, inquisitiveness, with the spirit of ambition and vain talking. Grant me instead to be your servant. Grant me the spirit of purity and of humility, the spirit of patience and neighborly love. O Lord and King, Grant me the grace of being aware of my own sins 
and not thinking evil of those of my brethren. For you are blessed now and ever and forever. Amen. 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 Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Bye.